morning. Can you hear me? Good. Well, good morning. If you could, open your Bibles to 2 Peter 1. If you find 1 Peter, it's the next one. Happy Father's Day. Man, I'm so thankful for you. This isn't uh, necessarily a, a Father's Day sermon, but I think there's great encouragement in our roles as fathers. God's promises help us to endure and to stand firm in our parenting, and our discipline, and our love for our kids. Um, we're going to be studying uh, 2 Peter 1 through 11, which contain both a magnificent declaration of God's work in us, as well as our need to grow in godliness. And I wanted to preach on this passage for two reasons. The first is just, it's magnificent. It's one of those passages that just stops you in your tracks, and we'll see that here in a second. And the second reason is that it provides a very clear explanation uh, of the connection between God's work in us and our need to grow in godliness. And this is a tricky thing, right? Because we don't want to be legalistic, works-based, right? Like the Pharisees or the Catholics. We know that our works do not save us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. On the other hand, we don't want to fall into the trap that so many do in our modern age where we say, well, we're... We're saved by grace alone, so our works don't matter, right? And that leads to lawlessness, and it leads to faithlessness, because we're going to see in the passage today that there is no life in Christ without holiness. So we're going to read 2 Peter 1 through 11 together, and then we're going to pray and dive into it. So why don't you read with me? 2 Peter 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we so desperately need your help. God, without you there is no life and there is no hope for godliness. Lord, we stand by faith alone in your grace alone. Lord, your promises have divine power to help us 
to press on in the faith, to fight against the tide of sin and wickedness in this world. God, there is no help apart from you. Bless us in this time, God. May we strive for greater godliness, knowing that the work is already finished, that you have already won the victory, and that we stand on your divine power. God, may you get all the glory as we strive forward in godliness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we begin the, uh, the epistle here, notice that Simon identifies himself as a servant and apostle of Christ Jesus. And I love that he uses the title of servant first. Right? This is Peter. He has great authority as an apostle, but he identifies himself as a servant first. Right? He doesn't flaunt that authority. And notice his address, too. Those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? There's a sweet humility and love in this. Right? This is very different than the Peter of the Gospels who's fighting with the, the other disciples about who's the greatest. Right? Not anymore. Peter has authority, but he writes as a servant. And he emphasizes the equality of his faith with ours, with theirs. Because Peter's faith, Paul's faith, Martin Luther's faith, John Calvin, any giant of the faith, their faith is of equal standing to ours because we all obtain our faith, as he says here, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The foundation of our faith is the righteousness of God, not our own. And there's no reason for boasting. Now take a look at verse 2, which is his, his benediction. Because it gets to the heart of what Peter wants for those he's writing to. Notice it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And we know this is important to Peter because if you flip over a page, he says it again at the end. He says that the last verse of the epistle, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So his heart for those he's writing to is to grow in the grace of God, that peace would be multiplied to them. Right? And I long for that for you, that you would grow in grace and that peace would be multiplied, multiplied in you. The method then of how God's grace and peace is multiplied is very important. Right? Notice what he says. He says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And this is the core of Peter's message here in the opening passage. Right? The means by which grace flows from Almighty God to us is by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If you want to enjoy God's grace and peace in this world, you must grow in your knowledge of God. And it is so critical that God's grace be multiplied in your life and through you and beyond to your family, to your church, to the world. Seek and strive to know the Lord, to know his word, not just for knowledge's sake, but that God's grace and peace may be multiplied to you. Because as we're about to see, God's grace is power for life and godliness. Now take a look at verse 3, and um, I would highly encourage you to read this two, three, four times, maybe even memorize it, because there's such a sweet, sweet promise here. Verse 3, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We're going to look at three things in verse 3. Okay. First, our goal. Our goal is life and godliness. Secondly, our source. God's divine power is the source of this life and godliness. And lastly, our means, how God's divine power produces in us life and godliness. So first is our goal. And our goal is life and godliness. And life here is not just physical life, although that is, of course, a blessing of God's divine power. However, Peter refers to spiritual life here. Life in Christ as a result of God's saving grace. God gives us life through Christ's resurrection, and we have hope and eternal life to come. This life, though, you'll notice, is inextricably connected to godliness. There's no eternal life without godliness. Our goal in life is not simply to get to heaven. We do not seek merely to escape death and the fires of hell. Our goal is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There is no excuse, and there's no permission to live an unchanged, unrepentant life and hope for anything other than eternal death. Life and godliness are inseparable, and life and godliness are our goal as believers. So our goal is life and godliness. So what's our source? Our source is there at the beginning of the text. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I don't, um, I'm not an expert on the ancient Greek, but I, I did some research, and you know what the word all means in the original Greek? It means all. All things pertaining to life and godliness. It's one reason why I find the verse very helpful, because it's incredibly humbling, right? If, if all things pertaining to life and godliness come as a result of God's power, right, and I'm doing my math right, that means I had nothing. I always liked, I, I heard this somewhere, Jonathan Edwards supposedly said it, right, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. This doesn't mean you're passive in your Christian walk. We'll talk more about that in a second. Right? Paul commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is clear that we would never be godly or attain eternal life if we do not rely entirely on divine power. Now, this is incredibly important. Right? Christianity isn't a set of doctrines to be accepted. Mere intellectual belief in Christ will save no one. It is the divine power that grants life and cultivates godliness with it. Romans 8.14 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The unmistakable hallmark of being God's children is the manifestation of divine power, which in turn leads to godliness. A profound love for all things godly and a life committed to the obedient service God. So divine power for life and godliness is given to those who rely on Christ's righteousness. How then is that power accessed and experienced? How does it become active in our lives? We want that at work in us, so how do we access that? The final part of verse 3 gives us the means. Take a look. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the means by which we enjoy the divine power of God at work in us for life and godliness is the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Consider the power of the knowledge of God. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior and God, the knowledge that our sin is wicked and evil and deserving of utmost judgment, but that God himself sent his Son to die in our place, after which he rose again on the third day so that we might have eternal life. It is this divinely given knowledge by which God's divine power gives us all things needed for life. Through that power, we have life in Christ. This is why Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God reveals himself to us that we might know him. And through that knowledge given by him, he works with all his power, the same power that created everything that shaped the stars and the planets, and you and I, to provide for our salvation, our godliness, and our spiritual life for eternity to come. Don't let this be abstract. Don't let it be intellectual. The most important goal in your life would be that you are alive in Christ and of godly character. And God has given you all things necessary to meet this goal by his divine power, and he's given you the means by which you might access that power. And verse 4 elaborates on this idea. Take a look. Peter continues. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here we see what Peter has in mind with both knowledge and godliness. Clearly in verse 4, the knowledge that leads to God's divine power at work is the knowledge of his precious and very great promises. Our knowledge of God's promises provides the means by which God's power flows for our life and godliness. And then the second part of verse 4 tells us the end result of God's power at work within us. And again, don't read this lightly. This is astounding. Peter tells us that through God's power, two things, right? Positive and negative. Positive. We become partakers of the divine nature. Think on that. And we escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the core of the Christian life. And it's the two things we need most desperately, and we achieve them through the power of God at work within us. God does it. One, we need to be freed from the sin that entangles us and corrupts us and enslaves us. And two, we need to be united to God and his likeness. And God teaches here what we so desperately need to know, that this liberation from sin and likeness to God come by knowing and trusting his precious and very great promises. Now, this is a precious reminder of what God has done for us, but it's also a very practical application in your day-to-day life. Studying the scriptures, striving to know God's word isn't just about knowledge. It's not just about winning Bible trivia. Knowledge of God's precious and very great promises is divine power. When Pastor Joel asks us like he did last week, 
to call out the promises of God during worship. He's not interviewing for future elders. He's doing this because the promises of God are the means by which we become the partakers of the divine nature. How we put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, as Paul says. And how you put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When God makes you a new creation in Christ Jesus, he grants you the right to partake in his very nature, in true righteousness and holiness. So very practically, we ought to treasure God's promises. Take one or two of them in your mind, fix them in there, hold them before you throughout your day. Meditate on these precious and very great promises and let God work through them in divine power to cast off the sin that so easily entangles and pursue godliness without compromise. Notice in the last part of verse 4 that corruption is in the world because of sinful desire. So the battle is for our desires. And this, isn't it what Satan did? He held out his own perverted promises. Take this fruit and eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The false promises of Satan and of sin always promise our happiness and fulfillment. And if you lie to your boss, if you take out your anger on your kids, if you divorce your spouse, if you indulge those lustful fantasies, if you cheat on your taxes, if you avoid sharing the gospel with your loved ones for the sake of your own comfort, if you reject God's law for the sake of conformity with a wicked world, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. And sin will always win that battle unless we have the eternal might of God's promises always before us, spurring us on to righteousness with divine power. If we are not armed with God's promises, ready to stand against all the perversions of sinful desire, we will be utterly vulnerable to temptation. However, when we continually fix our gaze upon the promises of God, We invite the presence of his divine power. Through this divine power, we are able to break free from the clutches of corruption and undergo a transformative process that aligns us with the very image of his son. It is crucial to nurture a deep love for God's promises. As revealed in his word, never ceasing to hold them in our hearts. They ought to be a treasure before us, drawing us away from the path of sin and towards Christ's likeness. So, our ultimate aim is life and godliness. The strength to become godly comes from divine power. And the bridge between our goal of godliness and God's divine power is knowing and trusting in the promises of God. Verses 5 to 11 then deal with our response. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. And then the first seven words of verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort. For this reason tells us that everything to follow is because of what we just read, verses 3 and 4. Because God's divine power is at work 
in us for life and godliness through our knowledge of his promises. For this reason, make every effort. And this is the, it's the paradox at the heart of the Christian life. Right? God has already made every effort and has made you godly. So make every effort to be godly. We work for greater godliness because God has already worked for our godliness and has granted us all things pertaining to it. Right, I already said it, but I'll say it again. Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Never, never reverse the order. Never say, you know, I will work out my salvation with fear and trembling so that God will work in me. Right? That's a different gospel. That's no gospel at all. It's exactly what Galatians warns against, that Pastor Joel and Esteban have been preaching through. It's works-based righteousness. It is no righteousness at all. It's the difference between a husband doubting his wife's love and striving to earn it and a husband certain of his wife's love, resting in that and making every effort to live in a manner worthy of that love. God is for us with divine power. Of that, we can be confident. So in assurance of that power, strive not to live unworthily of that love. Verses 5 and 7 then tell us how we ought to live. Take a look. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, patience, and steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Right? So we see eight qualities beginning with faith, ending with love. Right? Faith is the foundation of our Christian walk, and our faith ultimately overflows in love to one another and to the world as a whole. Okay, I, don't, I don't think, though, that this is some overly prescriptive, do this and then this and then this and then this, some way of growing. Okay, there's um, obviously some overlap. We know that love is patient, right? so they are in many ways connected with each other, but the point is not to give some timeline. Right? You've got knowledge, so better grow in self-control now. Rather, Peter's goal seems to be urging his audience onward and forward. Right? Because true Christians never stop pursuing growth in grace. And the goal is emphasized in verse 8. Right? If these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's a call to a holy dissatisfaction with our current level of godliness and a desire to press on, to grow in Christ-likeness. Scripture makes it clear in this passage, throughout the Bible, that standing still is not enough. If you are in the dangerous waters of this sinful world and you think you can just float, you will drown. You've got to swim. You must press on to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so this is Peter's message here. This is his advocation. As you have obtained faith in Christ by his grace, good! Now strive to advance in virtue. And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied but seek to increase your knowledge of God's will, and as you, God's will. And as you stand in that, do not be satisfied. But be eager to increase your self-control, your mastery of your passions. And as you stand in that, don't be satisfied. But cultivate 
every form of patience and steadfast devotion. And in that, let love to God grow. And in that, work to deepen your affection with other believers. And in it, and through it all, grow in love to all men. This is Peter's message. Keep going. Make every effort. And work out your salvation with fear and trembling all while never forgetting that it is God who works in you. Verse 8 makes it clear. Effort toward virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love is not icing on the cake of our faith. Peter writes, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a clear promise. God will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. But it's also a clear warning. Right? Remember Peter's benediction that grace and peace would be multiplied to them through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But here we see the opposite, ineffective, unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ, which tells us that there's a very real danger, a very real possibility of possessing the intellectual knowledge of Christ, of making a start in the Christian life, but to become so barren and indifferent and drift away from true knowledge of God into destruction. Peter writes later, in this letter, he says, if after, they, if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first. If the knowledge of God's glorious promises does not spur us on to make every effort to grow, then we will be barren and fruitless and drift to our destruction. Now, back maybe six, seven years ago, my mother-in-law showed up at our door one day with like a dozen plants. Um, this wasn't that unusual for her to just show up with random things. And she was working at Circle K, and I forget the exact details, but some customer showed up with these plants and didn't want them. Somehow she got them, and I don't remember why, but she told us that the customer had said that they were fruit bushes. We couldn't tell. Terry and I don't know anything about uh, gardening. And so, in short order, um, she had planted them, right? She dug holes, put soil in them, mulch, and they were growing. And as time passed, they began to die off for one reason or another. Um, about four years passed, and there was only one left. And we still had no idea what it was. It was clearly going to be a bush, but it could have been anything. And it really wasn't until last year, I think, that I was mowing and I could see they were, it was, there were blueberries growing on the bush. Okay, we still haven't picked any. They're not, they're not quite ripe. I'm hoping uh, for a harvest this year. Okay, my mother-in-law passed away in, in 2019, but here in our yard, there's this, this one little bush randomly in our yard, and um, because all the other ones have died, it kind of looks out of place, but it's growing as a sweet tribute to her. But here's my point. All of those bushes were probably blueberry bushes, and every single one 
had everything it needed. Only one bore fruit. But it wasn't as if the others were just fine being fruitless bushes. Right? You bear fruit, I'm just going to stay here fruitless and chill out. Right? They died. Their lack of increase, their lack of growth led to their destruction. The one bush that bore fruit, though, it not only survives, but it grows. And will, I hope, lead to increasing abundance. Because I really like blueberry muffins. Pressing on in fruitful faith is essential to our partaking of the divine nature and escaping from the corruption in the world due to sinful desire. And verse 9 describes what has happened to the person who's not pressing forward in Christ's qualities. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The person who does not strive toward all the fruit of faith is blind, and notice it's in two directions. Right? When he looks to the future, it's a haze, he's nearsighted. Right? All he can see are the false promises of sinful desire and the corruption that's there. And when he looks to the past, the forgiveness of God is forgotten, and all that's left is blindness. So in verse 3, the power for godliness flows through knowledge of God. Here, blindness to the past and future work of God leaves us powerless, drifting toward destruction. And the stakes become very clear. Verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you're not increasing in your fruits of faith, the danger is not that you will enter the kingdom of God with little reward. The danger is that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven at all. The danger is that you are not being saved. Now, Peter calls for them to confirm their calling and election. And, uh, Pastor Joel spent two weeks this year discussing election and predestination. And I don't want to spend too much time revisiting what he's already taught so capably. But in short, the whole world is under the righteous judgment of God due to sin, but God in his mercy ordained a people for himself, a people for his own to be saved by his grace through the death and resurrection of Christ, these are his elect, whom he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8 tells us. Those he predestined to Christ's likeness, Romans tells us, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He made right with him. And whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a guarantee. None of God's sheep will ever be lost. They are eternally secure. It's why he can say with confidence here, you will never fall. But for us, on this side of eternity, the most important question is, am I among the elect who God predestines to be like Christ and then calls and justifies and glorifies forever? And this isn't meant to be a mystery. right? If we are, God wants us to know that we are. He wants us to have joy and assurance. Right? So that divine power through his promises will flow. And so, P 
Peter says, confirm your election. And how? By standing in your faith, making every effort to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. The confirmation of your election is your progress in sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness. And we know that these efforts are not in vain because God has given us all things needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of his precious and very great promises. And notice how he concludes this section. If you practice these qualities, if you're growing in Christ-likeness, if you're pursuing with every effort sanctification, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, these aren't your ticket to heaven. They're not the means of entering into the kingdom of heaven. Notice it says provided for you. We do nothing to earn it. However, they are the evidence that our trust is in God's promises, and it's true. And they are the confirmation of our call and election. Now, some of you will hear this. You'll hear Peter's words and you'll say, because of your own conscience, because of the consciousness of your own sin, you're going to hear that and you're going to begin to think, right, I'm not growing in these Christ-like qualities like I should. Maybe God hasn't even saved me. Right? Our sin can be so discouraging, our own lack of Christ-likeness. And Satan loves to use our sin to encourage despair and greater sin. So if you consider your own fruitfulness and question your salvation, I want to give you three assurances quickly. First and foremost, I would encourage you to remember God's promises. For we know from this passage that divine power flows through them. 1 John 2.25 makes it clear. This is the promise that he has made us. Eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God's promise is clear. He is faithful to save to the uttermost those who trust in him. So trust in God's divine promises. Second, remember that Peter's call here is not to be at a certain measure of godliness, but rather to press on and keep striving. Again, never confuse the order of God's work and our own. As Paul says, we press on to make holiness our own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Okay, There will be seasons in your life where you see a lot of fruit in your spiritual walk, and there will be seasons where you feel stuck in the same sins you've dealt with your entire life. And in both of those seasons, never forget that Christ Jesus has made you his own, that you are his prized possession. In seasons of fruitfulness, this should humble you, because apart from Christ's word, you would bear no fruit, and you would still be a slave to sin. It's his divine power that's given you all things needed for life and godliness. And it's all due to him. And in seasons of despair and frustration, never forget that you are Christ's own. And God's word promises that he will never leave you 
or forsake you. And thirdly, and very practically, trust those around you, in your family, your church. Okay, we're sometimes blind to God's work in our lives. It's just true. We're very given to despair, and so it's why God commands us so many times in Scripture to encourage one another. Right? Hebrews says, exhort one another daily. Okay, it tells you how short our memory of God's work is. Encourage one another daily. So if you don't see yourself growing in these qualities that Peter mentions, just do yourself a favor and ask your spouse. Ask your small group members. Ask your pastors. Ask those who know you and love you and care for you and want you to grow. I guarantee you that those who have known you for a long time in the church will be able to see growth and godliness in your life, even if you don't. I can't tell you how many times that Terry, my wife, has encouraged me in seasons of frustration with my own sin by pointing out how God has worked in my life and how I've grown. And by the way, if, uh, if you see your brothers and sisters growing in godliness, love them enough to tell them, especially your spouse. You never know how your words of encouragement will push others to press on and fight the good fight of faith. So if you find yourself doubting your salvation because of what you perceive as a lack of growth in godly character, one, trust God's divine promises. Two, remember that God has called you to press on, not to be perfect. And three, seek encouragement in those who know you and love you in Christ. So church, Peter has laid out the beauty and power of God's promises. He's called us to respond by making every effort to bear fruit of godly character. And so the application is clear here. Are you knowing and treasuring God's promises? And are you making every effort toward godly character? Are you striving for Christ-like virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love? If these things are in you and increasing, Peter tells us you will not be fruitless. You will never stumble. You'll never fall. And you will enter the eternal kingdom of Christ that he has provided for you. If you find your progress and sanctification stale and static, make every effort to pour over the precious promises of God. There is divine power in knowing them. God's word warns us against being lazy in our faith and drifting away from Jesus Christ, our only hope. And he encourages us to fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, 1 Timothy says. God's word encourages us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the joy of pressing on. For we know that we are becoming like Christ, and we have joyful reassurance in our election and calling, leading us to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So church, press on.
standing on God's promises and rejoicing that you are his. Let's pray. God, if we, if we had to stand on our own might, our own righteousness, our own virtue, we would fail every time. If we made every effort without your promises, we would fail every time. By our own works, we are never safe. And so, God, help us to trust in your precious and very great promises. You promise to be with us. You promise to give us all things we need for life and godliness. You promise never to abandon us, but to return, to judge the wicked and preserve the righteous. Our hope is in you and you alone. May we treasure your promises. May we treasure your word. May we grow in godliness through trusting and knowing your promises. We thank you, God, for them. We thank you for your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.